Hello, welcome to True Crime Aficionados, a true crime book club podcast hosted by me, Misha Iman. Today's episode is about Ted Bundy's murder spree that begins in Seattle. It is a wild ride, so all of the trigger warnings are applicable today. Grab your drink. This bitch was fully, fully on one. All right, let's get into it. Sometime after 2 a.m. on the morning of January 4, 1974, 21-year-old Terry Caldwell switched off her TV and went to bed. Her room was in the basement of a house she shared with three men in the University District of Seattle. According to reports, there was a window on the side of the house which, if the curtains were drawn, would allow anyone access to peer directly into her bedroom. The back door of the house was always left unlocked. Around 2.30 the following afternoon, one of her roommates peered into her room, thought she was still asleep, and left. However, when she was still in bed by 7.30 that evening, in this literal fucking nightmare scenario, her roommate pulled back the covers only to discover a bloody mess. Terry had been beaten with a metal rod in her head and had a speculum or vaginal probe shoved brutally inside of her. The roommate naturally screamed and began to shake her. She moaned, coughed up blood, and passed back out. She was in a coma for an extended period of time, but she survived. She remembered nothing of the attack or of her attacker. Police tried hypnosis on Terry, hoping to recover some sort of memory of her attack. It didn't work, which is probably for the best because that shit sounds traumatizing. The police concluded that her attacker must have knocked her unconscious while she slept, proceeded to sexually assault her, and then further beat her. (sighs) I know, guys. Unfortunately, it only gets worse, so buckle up. (laughs) 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy was a psychology major at the University of Washington due to graduate that May. She enjoyed working with children and wanted to be a teacher. Linda was described as being a gregarious, beautiful singer with blue eyes and shoulder-length brown hair parted down the middle. She had an early morning job as a ski report announcer for Northwest Ski Promotions. Her morning radio job meant rolling out of bed hella early. She often set her clock radio for 5.30 in the morning. She had just enough time to dress, push her bike up a couple of concrete steps from the basement and out the side door. For most of her time at the University of Washington, Linda lived in the dorms. However, the previous autumn, she and four other women moved into a green, two-story house in the Seattle University District. Linda and her best friend Karen each had a small bedroom in the basement, separated by only a partition of plywood. On Thursday, January 31st, 1974, the last evening of her life, Linda Healy made a casserole dinner for her roommates. After dinner, she and a few friends went to a nearby college bar, Dante's, for drinks. Again, being the ultimate homie, not only did she make dinner earlier for her roommates, she got the first pitcher of beer. After a few drinks, the group left together between 9.20 and 9.30 p.m. Her roommate Joanne would later say, I don't recall anyone following us or approaching us on our way home. Little did they know that Dante's was a bar that Ted Bundy had frequented himself so it's possible he spotted their party that evening and followed them home. Before bed, Linda spoke to her boyfriend on the phone for an hour 
and then chatted with roommate Joanne, who said that Linda's mood was good. They spoke about the bar and Joanne's boyfriend back home in Phoenix. Joanne told authorities that Linda gave no indication of stress, either physical or mental, and gave no indication of leaving. Karen, who shared a basement bedroom with Linda, returned home around midnight and noticed a single living room light was on. As Karen descended the stairs, she didn't stop to check if the basement door that led outside was locked. This door was primarily used by Linda and some of the other housemates when they wanted to ride their bikes. Unfortunately, the keys to the front door had been lost and new keys were still on the to-do list. So until then, the front door was left mostly unlocked as a courtesy to those coming in late at night. Could not have been me. Yo ass would have been cold and stranded fucking around with me. No, lock your fucking doors. That's literally what locks are for. Otherwise, why would doors have them? Insane. Karen passed by Linda's room on her way to bed and assumed Linda was asleep. Again, only a thin partition separated their basement bedrooms. As Karen slept in bed, Linda would have been sleeping only a few feet away beyond that plywood. She would later tell police, I'm normally a very light sleeper, but I didn't hear a thing. Police wondered if perhaps Linda was abducted in the half hour or so after midnight, right before Karen came downstairs to her room. In an odd foreshadowing of events, it has been reported that night, one of the roommates saw a shadow that moved just outside a window on the side of the house. However, she was essentially gaslit by her roommates into believing it was just a tree or a branch or a bush, something moving in the wind, nothing to be concerned about. Can you imagine? I mean, but what are you going to do? Call the police over every shadow? Lock, lock your doors. That's what you can do. You can lock your goddamn doors. At 5.30 a.m., Linda's roommate was woken up by Linda's alarm. I got up, she remembered. Linda's alarm was going off. I went past her room and heard the radio, but I thought she was lying in bed listening to it and didn't have work. At 6.30 a.m., the phone rang. It was her job, Northwest Ski Promotions, asking why Linda wasn't at work. I went to her room and called her, but she didn't answer. I turned on the light and went in. Her radio was still going off, and her bed was made perfectly. I was concerned she hadn't slept in it because there were no wrinkles and the spread was neatly tucked under the pillows. So first of all, Linda did not make her bed. Not at 5.30 in the morning. It just wasn't happening. And not only did she not make her bed, but this was done in a style that was way different than Linda's. Just kind of like flinging the covers back when she rarely did decide to like try to make it. So Karen asked the other roommates if they knew where Linda was. Someone suggested maybe she was with her boyfriend. However, this was immediately shouted down by the others. Linda wouldn't do that. They insisted she would have gone to work. Karen told the radio station that Linda wasn't home and hung up. Several minutes later, the radio station called back, this time to ask if Linda's bike was missing. A quick check revealed it hadn't been moved. She now noticed the door leading outside was unlocked. The entire house knew that Linda was having her mom, dad, and boyfriend over for dinner that evening, and she was really looking forward to it, so they knew at some point she had to return for dinner, right? Linda's roommates were immediately concerned. She didn't show up for work, nor was she seen at school. No one knew where she was, and it wasn't like Linda to leave without letting someone know where she was going. 
Around 4 p.m., Joyce Healy, Linda's mother, called the house. She and the rest of the family were expected over for dinner that night, but she too was having a difficult time getting in touch with her daughter. Joyce Healy was greeted with what could only be described as a mother's worst nightmare when one of the roommates burst into tears on the phone and said, we haven't seen Linda all day. Joyce told the writers of The Only Living Witness, immediately, I knew there was something extremely wrong. Around 6 p.m., Linda's father and brother arrived at the house. They were told by her roommates that Linda had been missing since early that morning. James Healy called his wife and told her not to come over. After listening to her husband, Mrs. Healy suggested he should call the police. According to one of the roommates, her father thought that they should wait a little bit. Her mom said, sure, Jan, hung up the phone and immediately called the police because fucking duh. The police arrived and listened patiently to Linda's roommates and family recount her disappearance. The officers were courteous, businesslike, and plainly skeptical of the possibility of foul play. Their initial report contained mostly routine information, name of the missing person, race, sex, height, etc. The police believed Linda would just show up, maybe at her boyfriend's, or call to say she'd be right home. Her mom obviously knew better and tried to explain to the police that her daughter simply wouldn't do that sort of thing. Well, one of the officers told her, that's the kind that do it, the ones you don't expect. After completing their report, they got back into the car and left. Around 8 p.m., the phone rang. Roommate Monica answered, but when she said hello, the only thing she could hear was the sound of faint breathing on the other line. This happened two more times throughout the night. This is literally, literally some serial killer shit. Like all of those, you know, tropes you see in the movies, this is it. This is literally fucking it. This is actually some Ted Bundy shit. <laughs> this is, this is so scary. Also, fuck a landline. Just before midnight, a homicide detective arrived at the house, which as a parent, I would have passed the fuck out. Police to homicide detective. Terrifying. He went directly to Linda's bedroom and was followed closely by another roommate who said, I was there when the policeman pulled back the bedspread for the first time. I saw that the pillowcase was gone and that there were bloodstains on the pillow as well as a fairly large bloodstain on the sheet near the pillow. Linda had two pink satin pillowcases. As far as I know, Linda always kept a pillowcase on her pillow. The detective checked the closet and noticed that Linda's nightgown was hanging up and had a blood stain on the upper portion at the back of the neck. The blood on both the bedspread and nightgown was a positive blood, Linda's blood type. Apparently, due to the fact that a change of clothes was missing, as well as her backpack and the fact that her nightgown had been neatly placed on a hanger in the closet, it was initially believed, are you ready? that Linda Ann Healy got a nosebleed and went to the hospital. I will say that again. <laughs> the police believed, they wrote this in a fucking police report, that Linda Healy got a nosebleed and went to the hospital. Yet, she didn't wake anyone up or let them know. She didn't take her bike. She just walked out of the house in the middle of the night with a nosebleed and went to the hospital, presumably on foot? for a nosebleed. Make it make sense. Make it make sense. 
Her boyfriend hadn't seen her all day. She had made zero contact with anyone in the past 23 hours. She didn't return home. She didn't go to dinner. She didn't show up for the dinner she planned for her whole family and boyfriend. No, she must have been out taking care of her nosebleed. The police suggested that someone should check the local hospitals. Yeah, I think this is what we would call a keystone cop. Yeah. Also missing was Linda Ann Healy's top bed sheet. The killer, who we now know to be Ted Bundy, made her bed with distinctive hospital corners, which would have required pulling it away from the wall and then pushing it back into place. These fucking Keystone cops didn't wonder why someone who rarely made her bed would all of a sudden, out of the blue, decide to do it while she was experiencing a medical emergency. Why would she take away the top sheet? Why would she take the pillowcase? Why wouldn't she ride her bike there in the middle of the Like, just do your job. Literally ask a question. Ask a question and then make it make sense. The police didn't dust her room for fingerprints. They didn't process it for hair or fiber evidence or even test a semen stain found on her bed sheet because, I don't know, doing the bare minimum would be too easy. Linda's amazing friends and roommates initiated a search of their own that weekend. They fanned out through the neighborhood, then banded together for a walk through Ravenna Park. At first, they called Linda's name, but slowly, one by one, they began looking timidly under bushes and nudging at piles of leaves. At night, the roommates still staying in the house pulled their sleeping bags together in the living room while their boyfriends took turns keeping watch. That lasted for a week before they abandoned the house altogether. When Linda's disappearance became news a few days later, a Seattle Times article quoted a homicide detective. We've interviewed 72 people and haven't learned what might have happened to her. We've talked with every guy she's dated since age 15, and you'd be proud to have any of them as your son. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good at all. The night Linda Ann Healy was abducted from her basement bedroom, Ted Bundy attended his contract law class at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma. He would have been back in Seattle in the early evening. By car, the distance between Linda Healy's basement apartment and Terry Caldwell, the woman assaulted with a speculum, could have been reached by a car in a matter of minutes. So Ted Bundy, toward the end of his life, he made some confessions uh, to his murders. And he did so in the third person because it was a way for him to remove himself from it and speak as if he was talking about another person. But he would be asked directly, like, what happened to Linda Ann Healy? What happened to, you know, this specific person? And he would 100% give start to finish details that only, literally only the person who abducted and murdered these young women would know. So this next excerpt is from The Only Living Witness by Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth, who they have a documentary called Conversations with a Killer. I tried watching it, but Ted Bundy's voice is just, it's just an awful thing to listen to. So they got him to confess um, and tell about what happened with Linda Ann Healy. And so here is his account. The Only Living Witness is written in the first person by the author Stephen Michaud. Bundy cleared his throat and looked at me. It wasn't exactly a smile I saw. It was more the look of a boy with a secret, a sly grin. His eyes darkened once again. He had seen the house before, Ted said, 
and for one reason or another had been attracted to its occupants. Then one evening, just being in the mood, so to speak, he checked out the house and found the front door was open. He thought about it. What kind of opportunity that offered? And returned to the house later and entered the house and explored it while everyone was asleep. Then he went around the house and found a particular bedroom door that he opened, really hit and miss, not knowing who or what, not looking for any particular individual. And that would be the opportunity. This was late at night, and presumably everyone would be asleep. It's determined that Linda Ann Healy was knocked unconscious. And then author Stephen Machat says, A curious feature in the bedroom was the fact that her bed was made, but apparently not by Linda herself. Ted shrugged. It was an attempt to cover up her disappearance. Would she be bound with rope or some kind of restraint? Asked Stephen. That would be the way it was done. Would there be words exchanged? I doubt it. He would have gagged the person. Where would you guess they'd drive to? What would be their destination? Some place that was quiet and private. His home or some secluded area. This was one of the first instances that he'd abducted a woman in this fashion. He was extremely nervous, almost frantic, and in a panic, trying to attempt anything. He'd probably put her in the back seat of his car and cover her with something. Then let's say he decided to drive to a remote location that he just picked out. Once he arrived at this point where he didn't have a fear of alarming anyone with shouts or screams or whatever, he'd untie the woman. He would then have the girl undress. Ted Bundy, piece of shit that he is, avoided the word rape. Instead, it was that part of himself that was gratified. When I tell you what I would give to punch him in the fucking face. (laughs) Oh my God. And now Ted Bundy likes to use flowery language to pretend he's smart, but he's not. So please bear with me. A certain amount of the need of that malignant condition had been satisfied through the sexual release. That driving force would recede somewhat allowing the normal individual's mental mechanisms to again begin to take hold and to control the situation. He realized he couldn't let the girl go, and at that point, he would kill her and leave the body where he had taken her. In the days and weeks following the killing, there would be an undercurrent of anxiety that comes with wondering just what was seen, what was found, and what was or was not missed. The attention focused primarily on the progress of the police investigation. If nothing of any significance was disclosed in the newspapers, that would be one way the tension was reduced. As far as remorse over the act, that would last for a period of time, but it could all be justified. He would say, well, listen, you fucked up this time, but you're never going to do it again. So let's just stay together and it won't ever happen again. But this didn't last very long, a matter of weeks. The only thing that appeared to be relevant was not exposing himself to that risk of harm again. The approach is, don't ever do it again, but as time passes, the emphasis is on, don't get caught. The next known victim of Ted Bundy was 19-year-old Donna Manson, who enrolled at Evergreen State College in the fall of 1973. Detectives would classify Donna as high risk because she was a hitchhiker and she preferred to stay out all night smoking pot. I guess I'm high risk too. She would sometimes leave the area without telling anyone, but always managed to return safely home. Donna's former roommate told police, Donna liked to party, and she did so almost every night until the early morning hours. 
She would frequently sleep in, not attend her classes, and then ask me to tell her what happened when I got back. Apparently, it was Donna's uncool habit of turning on the lights and stereo whenever she returned home, no matter what time it was. (laughs) This caused her former roommate to seek another place to live. Donna played the flute, wrote poetry, and had an interest in the occult. She was considering a course on magic and witchcraft that was going to be offered at Evergreen State College, which, are you kidding me? I fucking wish my university had a class on magic and witchcraft. Come on, Evergreen State. When asked about this, her former roommate, who really has some shit to say about her missing friend (laughs) who ended up being murdered, (sighs) she said... Donna's interest was only casual as it would have required too much reading for her. She was basically lazy. Sis, she's literally missing and murdered. Please relax. On the evening of March 12, 1974, Donna made plans to attend a jazz concert held on the first floor library. She was last seen wearing a red, orange, and green top, green slacks, an agate oval-shaped ring, and a beloved fuzzy black coat that once belonged to her grandmother. Before she left, Donna stirred some vegetable beef stew in a pan on the stove and turned the burner down to warm. She walked out of the door for the last time around 7 p.m. Donna would vanish either along the pathway or the parking lot adjacent to the building where the concert was being held. It's unknown whether she was enticed to a car or if she was placed unconscious into the vehicle or driven away. The mechanics of how Ted Bundy abducted Donna Mason remain a mystery to this day. Megan Ellis, considered to be Donna's best friend, did not find her absence surprising. Donna would often leave without telling anyone where she was going and just reappear. A few months earlier, she hitchhiked to Oregon for a few days, not bothering to tell anyone where she was headed or how long she would be gone. However, after several days passed and Donna didn't reappear, Megan decided to file a missing persons report. On that same day, March 19th, college security contacted Donna's parents. Which also, what a great friend, like the friend filed a missing persons report. And for those of you who have iPhones, Find My Friend is a great resource. Turn it on if you're going on a date so your friends can track your location. And if something goes wrong, the home button on the iPhone, if you hit it five times, it'll automatically call 911 and send your exact location to everyone you have listed as your emergency contact. Android users, um, good luck. No, no, I'm kidding. Donna's father and college security arrived to her college dorm room where they found her suitcases still in the closet and very few empty hangers. Her toilet articles were still in the bathroom, her camera, sleeping bag, backpack, flute, everything. All were still in her room. She hasn't run away, said Donna's mother. Something's happened to her. The night before she disappeared, Donna actually made plans with her mother to take a trip to the ocean together during her spring break. Once notified that Donna was missing, the police considered the possibility of suicide because she was known to be moody. Which, can a bitch just be moody? Can a bitch just be moody? Why I gotta be self-harm? Why can't I just be in a mood? However, once they found no suicide note or a body, when Donna didn't return to campus, they concluded she had to have been kidnapped. The problem was that they had no idea how. Her route through the heavily forested campus would have taken her down pathways that offered ample opportunity for someone to jump out and kidnap or kill her, which why is your college campus designed that way where someone could be walking along and get murdered? (laughs) Like, no. They had me with the occult classes. 
They lost me at the murdery walkways. So it's a no from me, dog. It's a no from me. The police are most certain that Donna was probably taken from the campus by car. The only logical place for her kidnapper to have parked was behind the auditorium where the jazz concert was being held. There were way too many students out that night for no one to have noticed her being knocked out and dragged into a car. So Donna must have willingly accompanied her killer to his car. Ted Bundy's dated law school notes indicate he did not go to class the day Donna disappeared on her way to the jazz concert. For the preceding months, these notes show a pattern of first regular attendance, and then they grow hella sketchy toward the end of March and then just stop altogether in early April. So he was a law student. Yeah, but the bitch didn't go to class. So who cares? Also, your profession or what you happen to be studying at university is no indication of you being a good person. You can still be a complete piece of shit. Most people in politics and the fucking police running around killing people, putting policies in place that disenfranchise people doesn't matter. That doesn't mean dick. Stop putting people on a pedestal because of their chosen career path. Who cares? Hold people accountable no matter what. Fuck their jobs. Fuck their titles. Hold people accountable. He was a law student. Give me a fucking break. So, of course, we have to get Liz Kendall's account for this. Remember Liz, Ted's girlfriend, the one who ran into his apartment with a butcher knife because he was on a date with another woman? Stable Liz. (laughs) So, oh, her book really is a, a wild ride from start to finish. Liz says... Ted and I weren't getting along very well. In March, I had come home from a skiing weekend to find him in my apartment upset and in tears. He said he asked the landlord to let him in because he had to see me. He was doing badly in law school and had decided to drop out. I was surprised. I had no idea his schoolwork wasn't going well. He looked haggard. We sat on the couch. He put his head in my lap and cried. I stroked his hair and tried to get him to talk, but the words came haltingly. He couldn't concentrate, he said, but he didn't understand why. He felt that he was spinning his wheels. Being a lawyer meant everything to him, but he was terribly afraid that he wasn't going to make it. I searched for the things to say. I knew he would be a great lawyer if he could just make it through law school. Maybe the University of Puget Sound was the wrong place. It was true, he said. The night school didn't feel like a real law school. Maybe a change of scenery would help. The University of Utah had accepted him before. Maybe he could reapply there. So the T is, is that Ted Bundy had four months earlier already reapplied and was accepted in the University of Utah law. This was just a whole fucking act, essentially, to make sure that when it eventually did happen, Liz wasn't caught off guard. Also, sit down, sit the fuck down. Have a drink ready. Have your kitten nearby. Have some vegan ice cream nearby. Have a slice of pizza. Whatever it is that is a comfort to you, have it ready because trigger warning. This goes beyond excessive or gratuitous violence. This is heinous, doesn't even cover the word, but I need you to be mentally prepared for what I'm about to tell you. Okay, are you ready? Because when I found this out, I literally had to go and take a shot. So she says Ted Bundy was haggard and wasn't doing well in school. The reason why he looked so haggard and the reason why he wasn't doing so well in school was because he obviously was a serial killer, but he also was a necrophiliac. 
Ted Bundy was a necrophiliac. He would kill his victims, decapitate them, bring their heads home, fuck their severed heads, go back to their headless bodies in the woods, have sex with them until, and I kid you not, decomposition proved otherwise, go back and continue to fuck their heads, redo their makeup, and sometimes wash the hair of their severed heads. So yeah, this bitch looked haggard because he was doing a lot. Are you sitting down yet? Did you take that shot yet? I'm so sorry to be the one to break it to you. Also, I have a theory as to why he was just suddenly in Liz's apartment. And this has been proven. He admitted this to people later. I don't know if it was this exact moment, but Ted Bundy incinerated Donna Manson's head in Liz Kendall's fireplace. Donna went missing right around the time Ted dragged his haggard, crying, boo-hoo, carrying-on ass into Liz's apartment, talking about, I'm failing my classes. Yeah. And you're also decapitating people, having sex with their severed fucking heads, redoing their makeup, washing their hair, and then burning them in your girlfriend's fireplace. I feel like there are no words. There are no words. This bitch was so fucking crazy. And Liz stayed with him. And when she wrote her book in 1981, she was still in love with him, even though she knew this. She's crazy, too. <laughs> like, she's on one, too. She's fully on one, too. <sighs> I mean, so sorry to continue with Liz's account. Within weeks, he had reapplied and was accepted for the coming fall. Also, that's not how law school works, Liz. You can't in weeks reapply and then suddenly be reaccepted, especially not in March of an academic school year. Look at the law school or any sort of university application process. Shit doesn't go down in March, okay? Anyway, she says, he would be moving to Salt Lake City. He talked about it a lot, but said nothing about my going with him. I waited and waited for him to bring it up until I couldn't stand it any longer. Am I going or am I staying? I asked him. It's up to you, he said. You can come if you want. I accused him of taking me for granted. He accused me of being insecure. The question of my moving to Utah was left dangling. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just cannot with her. The next month, on Sunday, April 14th, 1974, Jane Curtis was approached by Ted Bundy outside her campus library. She was 21 years old at the time and had been working in the library stacking books. She left between 8.30 and 9.30 p.m. She revealed to Detective Robert Keppel, After I finished work, I walked out of the main entrance of the library and I was just minding my own business and... There was this guy coming along and he had this huge stack of books, like eight or nine books, all hardbound. He had a cast on his left arm and all of a sudden he just kind of drops them right in the direction I was walking. So I just more or less offered to help. The cast, she told detectives, wasn't hard plaster, but more like a gauze wrapped around his arm. He wore a metal splint on his right hand and a grubby coat with a woolen hat pulled low over his head. The splint looked as if it had been applied with one hand. It was really sloppy, just kind of taped on. 
Jane assumed that this man was going to the parking lot used by most students heading for the library. However, he continued on past the parking lot beyond some railroad tracks, literally some Ted Bundy shit. As they walked, he spoke of being injured at Crystal Mountain where he said he ran into a tree. Jane thought that was odd because she too went skiing at Crystal Mountain and wondered how he managed to run into a fucking tree. She doubted his story and said, he didn't look like the skier type to me. The entire time they were walking, the man kept to her left. She remembered at one point, he kind of turned his head and looked at me kind of funny like, he looked at me strangely. His eyes seemed weird. As they approached his Volkswagen Beetle, he began complaining of pain, something he'd managed to avoid during their walk. Coming up on the passenger side of the car, Jane was carrying most of the books. He only carried two. She heard him say, open it up, and then attempted to hand her the keys. She refused. He then blurted out, get in. What, she said? Realizing how it must have sounded, he said, oh, I mean, could you get in and start the car for me? Jane was not fucking stupid, so she obviously refused to do it, so he opened the car himself. When he opened the passenger side door, Jane recalls that the interior light did not go on. She also says, when I looked in, what really got me was that the passenger seat was gone. That was really odd, and that's what really bothered me. It was just gone. Scared out of her fucking mind, Jane just drops the books at his feet, and for a split second, the man with the weird eyes just stood there looking at her. Jane Curtis took that opportunity and quickly made her escape. I sort of just ran away, she told the police, kind of fast. Jane Curtis survived Ted Bundy. A few days later, on Wednesday, April 17, 1974, Kathleen arrived at the library just after 8 p.m. It was a clear night, she remembered. I don't remember it being extremely cold or extremely warm. Her hair was long, dark, and parted in the middle. Kathleen spent a couple of hours in the library, and around 10 p.m., she gathered her books and left to call her fiancé. Within moments, she heard the sound of something like books hitting the pavement. I turned around and there was a man dropping books. He was squatting, trying to pick up the books and the packages. I noticed he had a sling on an arm and a metal hand brace on the other. I just noticed that he was unable to pick up that many things and I assumed he was going to the library. Kathleen offered to help. Yeah, could you, he replied. Also, I'm sorry, if he is this jacked up with a sling and a metal arm brace, why would this bitch be carrying packages and books? You know what I mean? Like, does that make sense to you? I, I'm just trying to think. If I was in this situation, would I want to help? I don't know. I don't know. Like, knowing what I know, I'd be like, shit, you out of luck, homie. Sorry. Mm, like, I ain't trying to get fucking murdered. Like, that's how it is. Women, we have to worry about that. Like, as a cis hetero dude, you could be fine. But as a woman, me, a woman of color, I'm not trying to help some nigga I don't know. Sorry, not sorry. But you won't be hashtagging saying my name. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. He was thin, but his face is a bit of a blur to me. I don't recall his features at all. Kathleen does remember that he was dressed sloppily, not real grubby, but not outstanding. His hair was light brown, kind of shaggy. He was about six feet tall and kind of scrawny looking, and he may have worn jeans with a wrinkled shirt and a shirt tail hanging out. She was unsure if he wore a mustache or glasses, but something told her that he had on both. The ruse of a helpless student was a good one. An arm in a sling, a hand brace, 
a backpack full of heavy books, some small packages wrapped in brown parcel paper tied with fucking string no less. I mean, really, how could he possibly be threatening? So Kathleen picked up the book bag while the stranger fumbled with the rest. Kathleen thought that he was headed for the library. However, he took a bridge and veered off course. This threw up red flags for Kathleen, who instantly said, wait a minute, where are we going? Oh, my car is just parked right over there, he said, and he motioned in, you know, some vague direction. Kathleen gauged the weight of the package that she was holding, and she guessed that she could beat the shit out of him with it in case he tried to do something, which good for you, Kathleen. She says, I was extremely cautious while with him. I never gave him the opportunity of walking behind me. The distance to his car once they crossed the bridge was about 150 feet. The car, a Volkswagen, was conveniently parked in a secluded, dimly lit section on the edge of campus in a no parking area under a railroad trestle bounded by tall grass. Literally serial killer shit. The area to his car, Kathleen said, was not well-traveled. As they walked, the bandaged man feigned having pain while mentioning he'd been injured in a skiing accident. His Volkswagen came into view. However, it was hard to see because Kathleen recounts it was a dark road. There were no streetlights on that road, but it wasn't completely black. The lack of light made the Volkswagen appear shiny and new, but in fact, the brown bug was old and dented. By now, the stranger had led Kathleen to the passenger side of the vehicle. He parked his car close to a log lying parallel to the car, so there wasn't enough room for more than one person to squeeze right in between the log and the passenger side of the door, literally cornering her. As he pretended to try to open the car door with his like, you know, little fake fucked up arm and had the key, Kathleen laid the backpack on the ground and said, deuces, see ya. She walks away and then the stranger conveniently drops the key. He pretended to feel around for it and said, wait, wait, uh, do you think you could find it for me? Because I, I can't feel it with this thing on my hand. Kathleen was a smart bitch and was not about to bend down and start looking for the key while he hovered over her. So she said, let's step back and see if we can see it in the reflection of the light. So we stepped back, she said later, kind of behind the car to the side. And I squatted down and luckily I did see the reflection of the key in the light. Kathleen, after having picked up the keys, dropped them into his hand, wished him a speedy recovery, and fucking dipped. Kathleen believes that he said thank you as she left. Kathleen survived Ted Bundy. Case in short, I don't know, don't fucking help people. Sorry, but <laughs> like, why are you at a library with 25,000 books and packages, nigga? Stay home. That same evening, 18-year-old Susan Elaine Rancourt decided to go to the library as well. She, unfortunately, would not be as lucky as Jane or Kathleen. Susan Elaine Rancourt was a pretty girl with long blonde hair parted in the middle. She was a freshman focusing on a career in medicine. She had blue eyes, was a former cheerleader, and high school homecoming queen. She was known for her wholesomeness. Her father had recently paid for a lot of dental work, and Susan protected the investment by brushing and flossing her teeth often. She thought she wanted to become a doctor or maybe a research scientist. The only thing that seemed to get in her way was her painful adolescent shyness. Susan was working on that too. A little before 8 p.m., Susan Rancourt placed some clothes into one of her dorm's washing machines and walked to attend a meeting for those wanting to be dorm counselors. The meeting was due to end at about 10 p.m. The last people to see Susan alive 
said she was wearing a yellow short sleeve sweater, gray corduroy pants, a yellow coat, and a pair of brown hush puppies. Susan was afraid of the dark and would have been walking gingerly since she had left her contact lenses and glasses in her room. Any sudden movement or suspicious sound would have scared her. However, a heavily injured person in need, helplessly trying to manage his books, probably wouldn't have. With her mind on the counselor's meeting, the German language film she wanted to see that night, and the load of laundry she had to go pick back up after her meeting, she was likely less alert than usual. What's more is her determination to not be so shy could have let her be a bit more bold than she was used to. At 10.15 p.m., a student named Barbara Blair walked past the meeting and said she saw a man in a green ski parka who acted as though he were in a daze, as well as a young white woman wearing a yellow coat. This was no doubt Susan on her way home from the meeting, walking on the path that would have taken her right past the library. She no doubt saw Ted Bundy dropping his fucking books and packages and probably decided to help him. Thank fuckfully, Susan's disappearance was not taken lightly. The fact that she didn't get her clothes from the laundry room and her failure to return home was a clear signal that made it painfully obvious to anyone with a brain that something was wrong. By 5 p.m. the next day, Susan's roommate filed a missing persons report with the campus police department. Chief Alfred Pickles, his real name, ordered a campus search and issued a flyer which forgot to mention the day that Susan disappeared. He called Susan's parents in Anchorage, Alaska, and they came over. The overall responsibility for the disappearance of Susan Rancourt's case was delegated to Alfred Pickle's secretary. Not a cop, not a detective, his secretary. Not to diminish secretaries, obviously, in any way, but secretaries are not cops. Do they have access to the same resources? If someone shows up to your door and says, hi, I'm detective, you know, Misha, blah, 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 versus I'm secretary. Like, it's just, do they have the same access to information, witnesses? It's a wild concept. Also, is this secretary being paid enough? Also, why is she just named the secretary? What's her name? This bitch was the detective at this point. She's involved in a missing person's case. Give her a raise, say her name, give women their respect. I mean, just a mess. So upon hearing the news, Susan's family flew straight to Washington. When her family searched her room, everything Susan would have needed had she gone on an overnight visit was still there. Her purse, ID, wallet, contact lenses, glasses, checkbook cash, dental floss, which was something her family knew, given her extensive dental work, would not have been left behind. She took care of her teeth. If it were any of my other children, I'd just say stand by. They'll be back in two or three days. But not Susan. She was always so careful. Mr. Rancourt, Susan's father, told the reporter that Susan would have definitely packed a suitcase if she was going to go somewhere, especially overnight, and she would have notified someone where she was going to be and when she was going to be back. That's just the kind of girl she is, he explained. And he says that's just the kind of girl she is. He uses the present tense because he still believes that she's alive. Which is very sad. Okay. The families of these missing girls, they endured a special kind of agony of knowing that their daughters were missing, but not knowing exactly where they were or what happened to them. As Joyce Healy remembered, I went kind of crazy. All the time I thought, oh my God, she's probably dead, but we can't quit. We can't give up. We just have to keep trying. All three families posted rewards, hired detectives, prayed, and dealt with the fucking vampiric interviews and press 
just in the hopes of keeping their daughter's pictures in the papers. Susan's family tried and failed to get Susan's picture on the national television. Instead, the families of these victims received crank responses of supposed sightings of their daughters, late-night telephone calls from heavy breathers, and scam artists offering to return their daughters for a price. Jane Curtis and Kathleen, the two women who escaped Ted Bundy almost like fucking literally murdering them when he was pretending to be injured with his packages and books, they weren't interviewed about their encounter with Ted Bundy until months later. No one at the time thought that these three families shared a common problem. Although in each case, foul play was now and finally start to be considered a possibility. Oh, maybe Linda didn't get a fucking nosebleed and go to the hospital or, or maybe Donna didn't just like wander off somewhere. No, these women were kidnapped. Um, there were still no good suspects and no links in either of the cases. This is also before the term serial killer or serial murderer was around. So no one thought that one person was running around killing multiple people. On April 17th, the day Susan Rancourt disappeared, a Volkswagen similar to Ted Bundy's was seen parked at Taylor Mountain, where Ted's second dumping ground was later discovered. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> we did it. We got through episode three of Ted Bundy's crazy fucking killing spree. And I'm sorry to break it to you. It only gets worse. He's horrible. Thank you so much. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. I say us as if there's anyone else. This is me. This is a one black woman project. Aside from the amazing cover art that you see created by my beyond amazing unreal unicorn boyfriend. This is all a one woman show. The editing, the social media is all of it. So thank you so much. And it means a lot that you listen. If you would like to stay in touch, you can reach me at True Crime Aficionados on Instagram, True Crime Aficionados at gmail.com, and I respond to you. Have a great weekend. Please be safe and remember lock your fucking doors. Bye.